and welcome to the Newspace Podcast with me, Johnny Vedmore, your host. And I'm here with someone very special, Mr. Richard Poe, describes himself as a New York Times bestselling author, probably because he is, uh, a journalist <laughs> with a rather complex ancestry. Um, his works include Perfect Fear, Four Tales of Terror, which sounds interesting and apparently has an abundance of blood. Uh, and then Hillary's Secret War um, and The Shadow Party, which was the New York Times bestseller, um, and he co-wrote with David Horowitz, um, who has written a load of very interesting uh, works and, of course, looks in the same sort of areas as Mr. Poe and, Mr. Mes- and myself. Um, so I, without any further ado, um, we're going to talk today about um, some things in history which have been forgotten in time, a new history has formed, and we're going to have to get right down at the beginning. So to, to get this out of the way, um, who is Richard Poe? Mr. Poe, where did you come from? Welcome on the Newspaper Podcast. Where did you come from and what was your background? Well, uh, thanks, Johnny, for having me here. Um, I've been a, a professional writer, journalist, uh, just about my whole adult life. Got my first newspaper job at age 25, and I've worked for various newspapers, magazines. Um, I was at one point managing editor of the East Village Eye in New York City, uh, reporter for the New York Post. I was a senior editor for Success Magazine, and so forth and so on. So I came up through a pretty conventional um, print journalism route. And uh, for some time, I was a full-time author uh, for quite a number of years and doing very well at that until my publisher was acquired by a gigantic multi-billion dollar publishing corporation. Um, And, uh, well, I've been in the think tank world a little bit. I worked for David Horowitz a number of years and uh, doing think tank sort of research. And some of that research that I did with Mr. Horowitz uh, led to the book you mentioned, The Shadow Party. And that book was a real turning point in my life. Um, it was it became a very well-known book. It was a New York Times bestseller, but more importantly, it was featured on the Glenn Beck show back in 2010, 2011 in a very uh, famous uh, series that Beck called The Puppet Master, all exposing George Soros. And that's kind of what I became known for. And let's just say it was a life-changing turn in my life. It basically ended... um, (laughs) it, It ended my career as a mainstream journalist uh, acceptable in the, um, let's say, the neocon uh, world, uh, mm-hmm. from you could say from whence I sprang. Although I, I, I never really was a neocon, but somehow I was a sort of species that managed to swim in that habitat. And um, but things changed co- quite uh, definitely after I became uh, known as a, as a person who was writing very persistently about Soros. Because you see, the, the Shadow Party was simply the latest 
in a series of things I'd done about Soros. I had previously written a cover story about him in Newsmax uh, magazine back in 2004, and I was on the O'Reilly Factor uh, talking about that and instantly became a target of the uh, Soros-funded attack group, Media Matters for America. And then even prior to that, I had written about Soros way back in 1993 in a, a book. Uh, it was actually a sort of how-to book. It was co called How to Profit from the Coming Russian Boom. And when I was at Success Magazine, they had sent me to Russia several times to report on the fall of communism and the reinstitution of quote-unquote capitalism. And so I wrote this book. Uh, it was very positive. I, I was at the time very enthused about what was happening in Russia. I, I was partly because of my age group, I suppose. I'm a, a baby boomer. And I was very much imbued with the Cold War ideology. And when the Iron Curtain came down, I believed somehow the West had won the forces of goodness and righteousness, had had somehow won some great struggle against darkness. And so that was all reflected in my book. And I wrote very positively about Mr. Soros as being one of the people who was on our team, mm -hmm. whoever we actually are. Um, A misty, non-governmental, octopus-aligned, uh, neocon sort of uh, wave. I think it is. I think that's what that's what they were in the, especially in the the the, the fight against Soviet, like the fall of Soviet empire. empire. Right, right. And um, so I I wrote about him totally in in that regard. But then uh, later on, and I will say, I, I was aware even at the time that there were some controversies surrounding Mr. Soros, um, but I ignored them. The, the first thing I wrote about him was quite, um, quite positive. And although uh, he turned down my request to interview him personally, he did very kindly allow me to interview some of his personnel who were on the ground in Russia, and I wrote favorably about many of his operations there. Uh, so I did have some hope that uh, actually that, that me and Mr. Soros could get off on the right foot at that point back in 93. But I think he didn't like my book. He never said so. But um, just, uh, I think it was three years later, in 1996, I believe, uh, the Free Press came out with a book which I have to describe as a substitute for my book. It had a very similar color design. My book was called How to Profit from the Coming Russian Boom, and this substitute book was called The Coming Russian Boom. Mm. And not only that, but Mr. Soros himself gave it a glowing endorsement on the back mm. cover, uh, which he had not done for mine. Uh, not that there's any reason he should have, but I did notice that. And then a known Soros operative wrote a review of my uh, of this new book, saying, "This is now the book that everybody should read about Russia." Richard Poe's book is now uh, completely <laughs> out of date. 
<laughs> wow. So so I I guess a new edition of the textbooks come out for the kids. I'm afraid the curriculum's changing. Mm-hmm. Right now. So I I gather from those events and you know, Johnny, you're a guy who connects dots just like me. I I can't say I can conclusively prove that Mr. Soros was unhappy with my book, but it it appears from his actions and those of some of his operatives that not only did they disapprove of my book, but they felt the need to replace it. And what's interesting about that is when my book, the, again, the, the How to Profit from the Coming Russian Boom, when it first came out in 1993, it, it was uh, critically acclaimed. It was very well reviewed in all the right places, including the London Financial Times, which gave it a marvelous write-up and said that it was the first book which had uh, which had explained the privatization process in, in Russia, which they were then preparing. So my theory as to what I did wrong, uh, obviously I did something wrong, is that maybe the very thing the Financial Times liked about the book, which was clearly explaining how the privatization process worked, maybe that was part of what Mr. Soros and his his friends didn't like about it because they were all involved, as we now know, with corrupting the privatization process and co-opting it, and in some cases lining their own pockets um, with the uh, through the privatization of the the former uh, state-owned Soviet properties, and so maybe that was part of the reason. I I also said that there was a chapter on corruption in my book in which I. I told some hard truths about uh, Mayor Lushkov of Moscow, and I was reliably informed that Mr. Lushkov took personal offense, uh, which and and uh, actually banned my book from sale in, in <laughs> Moscow, which, which hadn't help. quite got used. Yeah, hadn't quite got used to the new the new the new paradigm. Right. So, um, so th- this was my very first published book, um, and. Uh, so I really jumped right into the thick of things without even intending to. I had been involved with a lot of controversial um, political writing before. I had gotten the FBI very mad at me and things like that. But this book, I thought, well, now I've joined the establishment. I'm on the I'm on the side of the angels. I'm pro business. I'm pro capitalism. Uh, the U.S. Commerce Department is encouraging people to invest in Russia. How could I go wrong? I was really trying to walk the straight and narrow. I was trying to be a good boy. But it's uh, it seems to be my fate in life, Johnny, that... <laughs> that you're a bad boy. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be my fate that he, even when I'm trying to be good, I end up being bad. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know mm-hmm. what to make of that. But anyway, so uh, that's the first thing I wrote about Mr. Soros. In 2004, I got a call from Chris Ruddy at Newsmax. I, I was uh, already writing for Newsmax. I was one of the uh, one of the part of the startup team, actually. In a sense, I was one of the earliest columnists within a year after they were founded. So Chris called me up and said he wants to do an expose of Soros, and that was because Soros had suddenly become outspoken about uh, internal U.S. politics, a subject he had previously avoided very scrupulously. He was 
known simply for uh, interfering in other people's, uh, other countries' affairs, but he tended to avoid U.S. affairs, and suddenly he jumped in pretending he was all upset with George Bush over the war on terror, and that Bush was supposedly a tyrant who was going to uh, destroy democracy and and uh, destroy the world. And he, Soros, uh, during this time, famously gave a speech at the London School of Economics uh, calling uh, for the puncture of the bubble of U.S. supremacy. He openly mm. began calling to bring down the power of the United States. And we now know um, that what Soros was doing was simply uh, getting in line with what was then already an official UK policy to get behind uh, the BRICS movement and the multipolarist movement for the very purpose of indeed bringing down the power of the United States, uh, substituting for what is supposedly the unipolar US order, a new order which is supposedly multipolar and um, which is supposedly uh, going to be better than than uh, the unipolar U.S. order being uh, overthrown as we speak today. But this brings me to the uh, my present course of research uh, regarding the world in general, uh, globalism in particular, and the role of Mr. George Soros in the globalist enterprise. And uh, please stop me at any time, by the way, Johnny, if you think I'm getting too long-winded or, or if you want to ask a question, because um, I can go on forever. No, no, and, no, you, uh, you keep going. You keep going. <clears throat> I'm, enjoy I'm enjoying listening at the moment. I, 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 will always, I will always interrupt if I need, if needs be, <laughs> I promise. I'm one of those. Don't evoke the interruptions. Right, well... Um, the thing is, what I'm known for now in this incarnation of my life, beginning from about, oh, three years ago, I started writing about a subject which I had never written about before, even though I had been aware of it for more than 30 years. And this is the subject of the, the uh, let's call it the hidden power of uh, Great Britain and the hidden role of British elites in the whole drive towards globalism. Now, I had been reading about this from various sources. Uh, I'd say most notably uh, Professor Carol Quigley, um, as well as other, um, other alternative researchers, historical revisionists of various sorts. Uh, this has been a favorite subject of, let's call them conspiracy theorists, uh, going way back. The topic of how all the evil in the world allegedly originates in, in London. And there are two schools of thought on why it originates in London. One is the school of thought, which seems to be quite prevalent now on Twitter, which is that the Jews... Uh, allegedly uh, control the world, uh, most particularly the Rothschild dynasty, uh, with its seat of power in the city of London. Um, this uh, 
this theory it seems to have gained a tremendous amount of traction on Twitter uh, on X. I think it's it's, it's very it's very meme friendly. Everybody knows the routine, you know, and and you can stick the the name down there. You can stick a Rothschild name down there. Everybody's oh, you know. So it works really well. I think that's one of the reasons why it catches on because just everybody knows that, you know. Yes, and um, we can talk uh, later about why everybody knows it. That's mm-hmm. one of my theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, about, well, they've, uh, they've been important. It's some extremely important moments in history, especially as we see in Israel Hamas uh, war right. going off. We know we know that there is uh, signatures from Rothschilds that, that that are really important in the history of the world. You know, right, and so. In any case, as I was saying, there are two ways of looking at this this idea that all roads lead to London, mm-hmm. uh, this particular branch of what we could call conspiracy theory. So the one theory is basically that the Rothschilds rule England, rule the, have always ruled the British Empire, and that every um, evil of the the uh, alleged against the British Empire was really perpetrated by the Rothschilds. That's one theory. The other theory, I think, is actually a little kinder to the great British people um, in saying that they themselves may be guilty of some of their own deeds. And uh, I think that's actually more of a compliment to them instead of thinking that they're just so stupid that they're capable only of being led led around by the nose, by the Rothschilds. But this is the second theory, in other words, is that the British themselves are the British. They're not controlled by anybody else, but the British crown, the British monarchy, the British uh, aristocracy, and uh, the British establishment and elites in general uh, are in charge of all of these globalist enterprises which have come out of England and that we should that we should start there and if there are certain banking dynasties who helped them do it well that's another question but i'm definitely uh, in the in the second category i tend to think that things that the british do are actually done by the british and not being done by Rothschild puppet, puppet masters necessarily. Um, and and uh, the fact that I believe that has uh, gotten me some uh, criticism on X. There are some people who are very annoyed that, that I take that position. And um, uh, the, the fact that I, I am partially of Jewish ancestry myself has been raised uh, as... as uh, a possible reason why I'm supposedly covering for the Rothschilds. I, I my, my father w- w- was Jewish. Uh, my late father, uh, he was of Russian Jewish descent. Um, my mother was actually of partially Jewish descent as well, on her Mexican side. But she was part Mexican and part uh, Korean, uh, <laughs> North Korean, as it happens. So, as you wow. mentioned, I I have a quite a mixed background but um and i am uh i was raised as a catholic by the way i am 
uh, Catholic by faith, or at least culturally Catholic. I- I'm afraid I just uh, posted something about the Pope this morning. Yeah, I saw. I saw. <laughs> so I, I don't let my ethnicity or my religious uh, affiliations interfere with my investigative agendas. But um, a- anyway, just just to, to mention that in passing, I, I will say this, actually, since, since, since uh, we're on the subject. I first discovered this theory of, of the Rothschilds ruling the world um, more than 30 years ago. And I read it in a book by a guy named Eustace Mullins. And the book was called The World Order. And it basically took the position that the Rothschilds are uh, the head of the snake and they rule the world from their uh, offices in the city of London. And I, I, I bought it when I, when I read that, I'm not going to say I, I believed it naively in every detail, but I was excited about it in the sense that I felt I discovered something that was very illuminating. And I, I, I went right to my parents, to my mother and father, and I was telling them, Oh, I just read this book about the Rothschilds and it says this and that and the other. And my father, my Jewish father, was um, a little concerned. And uh, he um, apparently knew something about Eustace Mullins. And he, he, in his very gentle way, cautioned me that I should take, that Mullins was uh, an anti-Semitic writer, as indeed uh, he, he is. And I should take this with a grain of salt. And because I loved and respected my father very much, um, I took his advice. I didn't take his advice on everything, unfortunately, in my life, but on this I did. And I took a step back and I re-examined this idea of the Rothschilds being the head of the snake. And I, I basically came to the conclusion that they were not the head of the snake, and I st- and I still have that position today, but uh, it's very important, Johnny. As you know, wh- when you're doing this kind of really deep research, when you're really questioning fundamental uh, fundamental aspects of the received history, the, the received wisdom uh, that we get in school and through the mass media. It's very important to have an open mind. And having an open mind means being able to read with, a, with, co- complete, with completely without prejudice, to, to read people from the most extreme ends of the spectrum, from, whether from the extreme left to the extreme right and everything in between, and to be able to try on different points of view. By trying them on, it doesn't mean believing in them, but it simply means saying, okay, suppose this is true, then what? Mm -hmm. So there was a time not too long ago in my career when I I would never even want to admit ever having read a book by Eustace Mullins uh, because he's known as a fascist and an anti-Semite. And I have read uh, books by people like him and publications and people way over on the extreme left mm-hmm. as well. And I have learned valuable things from all of them. Oh, yeah. 
And you learn why you learn why people are angry is one of the things you learn why people are angry. Yes, exactly, exactly. What is their beef? Mm -hmm. What is their beef? And so, um, I think it's really, really important if you look at things from only an uh, uh, an ideologically driven viewpoint, you will not understand why many large portions of the population are angry. You won't know what they're angry about. You'll know what some people are angry about, but not others. And as as you just said, Johnny, knowing what people are angry about is essential to trying to figure out how we in this world are being oppressed, how we are being cheated, how we are being robbed, because it's not just being done by some particular group uh, which is ideologically driven. Now, who is doing it? Well, to return to my to my narrative, uh, I started out in a way looking at George Soros for some reason. And I guess the reason is because I, I was very interested in Russia. I had studied Russian in school. I had, I had gone to school briefly in Leningrad uh, back in 1978, when I was in college, so I was um, I was very interested in the Russian language, in the Russian uh, culture, the Russian history, and the Soviet Union. Uh, partly because of my family connection to that part of the world, partly because I came of age during the Cold War, but for whatever reason. I didn't um, follow the path uh, that so many of my classmates did at the University of Leningrad. You know, I went there with a big group of, of Americans, uh, many of whom were there because they were preparing to go into the national security establishment. I, I didn't do that. I actually had a very impractical and, in hindsight, uh, very uh, unrealistically romantic view that I was going to be a, a pure writer and a pure journalist of the underground sort, and I was going to speak truth to power and all that, um, all of which now seems ludicrous to me because I I now know what I guess we most of, uh, we, most of us have learned in this cynical age of ours that uh, George Orwell was right. There is no underground. There is no resistance that has not been thoroughly penetrated and manipulated by the state. And of course, uh, Orwell's character, uh, Winston Smith, learned this the hard way in the novel 1984, when he uh, attempted to join the underground and found it was being run by the thought police. And so I, I think that's how things really run in this world. And yet somehow, even knowing that, and even realizing that whichever way we turn, we're going to run into that Orwellian reality of controlled opposition and uh, fake, um, fake heroes, fake champions of the oppressed, and so forth and so on. Nonetheless, there is a way to f swim in this particular sea, and I'm still trying to do it 
So uh, basically where this has all led me now at this point in my life is going back to the strange figure of George Soros and realizing that he works for the British. Uh, this is an idea that I, that I encountered decades ago uh, in many writings uh, by various um, uh, alternative researchers. It, it's, it's not something I, I discovered myself, but uh, I didn't have proof of it, and I wasn't quite sure. I wasn't 100% it was sh that, that it was true. So that even when I wrote The Shadow Party with David Horowitz, uh, and that was published back in 2006, I didn't go near that issue. And I'll tell you, um, Johnny, that uh, I knew enough when I co-wrote that book with Mr. Horowitz. I was really quite certain at that point that George Soros was working for the British. But I didn't dare to say it. I didn't. I. I wasn't afraid to go after Soros, and that can get you in a lot of trouble. And it did me. I was not afraid to go after Soros, but I was afraid to go after the British. And this is something a lot of people don't understand, because when you go after the Brits, when you go after this, let's call it a secret the secret of British influence of how the US-UK special relationship actually works. And what I mean by the secret is I mean that, that basically that the UK holds the upper hand and that the UK is calling the shots and the UK is the senior partner, not the US. And this is what I will attempt to prove um, in the course of this interview. Once you start getting into that subject, you will find that this is a closely guarded secret, and it is it you will be resisted in all kinds of strange ways. And so, um, And I knew this when I wrote The Shadow Party, and so I avoided that subject. Moreover, I wasn't going to even propose that to, to my co-author, uh, David. I, I mean, he didn't even want to go after the CIA in, in that book, and, and, and rightly so, wisely so, at that, mm -hmm. at that particular juncture back in, the, in that environment of, of 2006. He was right and, uh, about that at that time and in that place and for that particular purpose. But I was, you know, I, I was I was very reckless. I was young, I was full of fight. Um, but the fact is that, the point is that I want to make is that I was already aware of Soros's strange connections with British intelligence and the British establishment in general. But even I, reckless I, didn't dare to go there at that point. So at that time, the myth was being put out. The cover story for Soros, which was put forth uh, very clearly in a New Yorker article in 1995 by uh, a woman named um, Bruck. Uh, I can't remember her first name. Akani Bruck, 
brilliant article. She should have gotten a book deal for that. Strangely, she didn't. It was one of the earliest and most important uh, exposés of Soros. And she quoted some very high-level people in the U.S. national security establishment, the State Department, basically saying oh, that Soros is a force unto himself. He's, he's, we treat him, we, meaning the U.S. establishment, supposedly treat Soros as a sovereign government, as a friendly but independent sovereign government, a stateless statesman who represents nobody, not the U.S., not anybody. And so they told this to Connie Brooke with a straight face, and this was the myth of him, that he was some kind of James Bond villain who was so rich, so powerful, so wily and cunning that not even the mighty United States of America could rein him in. He was all on his own. And what was he doing with this extraordinary power of his? He was actually going all over the world, overthrowing governments by sponsoring and financing color revolutions, including such important governments as uh, the uh, Gorbachev regime in mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. And I have written in the shadow party and in some of my online writings about how and why George Soros was personally involved in toppling Gorbachev. And so uh, we've been asked to believe that this man, George Soros, this states, stateless statesman so-called, was going around the world overthrowing governments, including the, the, the last um, Communist Party government of the USSR, and he was doing this all on his own for his own reasons, uh, like some James Bond villain, literally. Oh, there's some. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I gotta just say that I'm uh, currently. I've, I'm in the last stages of an, an article, drafting an article out about uh, some MI6 uh, operatives, uh, very famous ones. One's linked to Sergei Skripal, and one of them is standing in 1993 watching Yeltsin on stop on top of a tank outside the Russian White House, giving his speech, uh, to rallying the troops just before the the the, the coups happening and uh and this is like one of the big members of mi6 watching on as it's all going on and I, that's something i see repeated throughout history and keep you know, keep what you were about to say there, there there's there's a couple of things that i i, I should say in, in my schwab research a lot of people just wanted me to go into the rothschilds really they wanted schwab to be related to the rothschilds so they found right. um two schwab uh a, a schwab couple that were related to a rothschild family and loads of people just said this is it there was a little there was um this this very uh it went round. It was a, a viral TikTok of a girl going on about, look, Klaus Schwab is a Rothschild because these people who are Schwab are Rothschilds. And it was not his parents, of course, or his grandparents, or his line. It was a different line because the, the, these people who married, uh, the Schwabs who married into the Rothschilds were up, up in the north, but it catches on um, really well. And when I look at, um, I, I kind of 
from a British perspective, have studied from about uh, 1400s and onwards. And what I think the reason why the British are so powerful in, in the way that you speak and in every nook and every cranny and, and have, have like top-down control, it's quite simply because they've been doing it for such a long time that they built the whole system in the first place to be, mean that it's just like strong pillars that will last for ages and ages. And even when uh, the the colonies started to fall, those pillars stayed strong with the use of intelligence and other methods where they were well ahead and manipulating America while being uh, a, pa a partner and allied to America during all that period. And I fe feel that the Rothschilds have been so important because like um, th that some of the Rothschilds have been accepted in to that British establishment in a way that means they are there next to the centre of power. Um, uh, but sorry, go go continue continue on. You you were you were. Well, I I completely agree, Johnny. The the way you described it is exactly the way I see it, and how Soros fits into this. It becomes very clear when you when you look back at his his life story. First of all, he arrived in Great Britain um, as a very young man. I think he was seventeen. He came as a refugee from uh, from his native Hungary, and he lived in the UK for about ten years. And during that time, he graduated from the London School of Economics, and he got his start as a financier in the city of London. And I believe that it was during that time, after his graduation uh, from the London School of Economics and before he left for the U.S. in 1956, it, I believe it was during that time that he was actually recruited by a cabal of financiers, uh, people at the very highest level of the, of the British establishment in the city of London, and uh, I have documented his relationship with these individuals at a later date. I cannot yet prove that he made contact with them prior to going to the U.S., but that's my hypothesis. That's my working hypothesis, and I, I I've seen it claimed by other people, but w with, without giving their sources. So, but I'm pretty sure that that's what happened because that's normally how people are recruited anyway. They're, they're recruited out of school or shortly after they leave school. But there's no question that Soros was recruited and had to be recruited. If he wasn't recruited by British intelligence, he would have had to be recruited by US intelligence mm -hmm. or some other intelligence agency. And this is the real issue that because of the activities in which he was engaged, which were basically uh, regime change operations, color revolutions, and economic warfare, uh, actually um, destabilizing, destabilizing sovereign nations by attacking their sovereign currencies, these, uh, these types of activities are forms of warfare. And they're, they're covert operations and they're, they're methods of warfare. And a private citizen, no matter how wealthy or influential, is simply not allowed to take place in these activities 
unless they are under the control and supervision of an intelligence agency, period. Mm -hmm. This is the overwhelming and obvious fact about Mr. Soros and a whole lot of other people like him. It, it, to suggest that he's somehow a loose cannon and doing this on his own, it's literally like saying that somebody could um, go, could open up a, a um, let's say, a, a heroin shop in the middle of Brooklyn, let's say, and start selling heroin and just do it on his own without expecting to get a knock on the door from the, the drug cartels and somebody informing him, you're going to work for us and you're going to give us our cut or we're going to kill you. I mean, that's how drug cartels work. That's how all businesses work, quite frankly. Nobody can just when you have a vested interest with lots of money being made, nobody just lets you walk in off the street and start cutting into their market share and start affecting their business. They don't, they don't do that. And they especially don't do that in the world of intelligence where uh, governments are being overthrown and currencies are being destabilized. It's, and it's just also, I, I mean, what you were saying about needing, someone was going to recruit him, so he needed to be recruited. There's a very small pool of people who have these sort of skills and abilities that, that are, and who are noticeable to these recruiters, that they're fighting over them. And then they're the ones who are deciding. It's a very small, closed network of people who are deciding how the whole game like this is run as well. Yes, exactly. And... So um, the fact that Soros attended school in the UK made him an automatic target for recruitment. This is an officially and publicly admitted uh, policy of the, the UK Foreign Office. They say that they do this. They brag about it. They came out with a white paper, I think in 2015, where they the UK boasted that it was the number one soft power in the world. And be specifically because it had this program of recruiting people, of, of bringing foreign students into the UK university systems, students such as Soros, uh, recruiting them and then keeping track of them throughout their lives uh, so that if they rose to prominence and started doing important things, they would be approached and they would be recruited and they would be made to act as agents for British interests. So the the UK Foreign Office boasts that they are the world's leaders in this particular activity of recruiting foreign students to come to their universities and then recruiting them into the service of British um, uh, statecraft and intelligence. So the mere fact that Soros went to the London School of Economics made him an automatic target of such recruitment but then there is other evidence showing that it was actually done. And I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago called um, How the British Invented George Soros. And there I showed that uh, Soros, what really created the phenomenon of Soros as we know him, this, the idea that he's some kind of extraordinary financial genius, the idea that he's a lone wolf who acts on his own, uh, the, the idea that he broke the Bank of England, quote unquote, 
um, back in uh, 1992. Uh, all of these elements of the Soros myth I learned were basically uh, constructions, propaganda constructions that were put together uh, primarily and apparently under the supervision of one Lord William Rees Mogg. And uh, mm. I, you may know who he is. He, he was the father of Jacob Rees Mogg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, Lord William uh, Rees Mogg mm. died in uh, 2012, I think. And he was. Uh, Establishment him, through and through. Well, <laughs> yes, so. uh, among other things. Uh, I, I call him the man who invented George Soros. Mm. Um, he, from his uh, perch at the Times of London, essentially created with his own hands, through his own columns, virtually everything we believe about George Soros today all the nonsense specifically that we believe about him being a lone wolf and, and all that. He, he was none of those things. Um, and what Rees Mogg did was, uh, so in, in 1992, basically what happened is there was, um, there was a financial operation, uh, a run on the pound that basically resulted in a 20% devaluation of the British pound. This operation was supposedly spearheaded and led by Soros, a fact which has never been proved. But as a result of this operation, and as a result of the 20% devaluation of the pound, the uh, British sterling was was kicked out of the European exchange rate mechanism. It was disqualified, and as a result, it was no longer qualified to be converted to the euro, which supposedly the British establish, establishment had wanted it to be. So this was a, a huge crisis in, in the, and was um, played up as such in the British press. But strangely... Uh, Lord William Rees Mogg and some people close to him were celebrating it as as a great triumph of their position because they never wanted to enter the eurozone, and so for a few weeks nobody knew how this had happened. Nobody knew who did it, and then all of a sudden Soros himself stepped forward and identified himself and said, "I did it," which in the world of of um, you know, this kind of shady uh, financial activity is totally un unheard of, unknown. Nobody who does this kind of trading ever deliberately puts their face in front of the TV cameras because it's dangerous. You can end up in jail uh, or worse um, for doing things like playing games with sovereign currencies of important countries like the UK. It's a very dangerous game. And it's not a game that that unaffiliated uh, lone wolves are allowed to play. They're just, it's just not allowed. It's too important. So anyway, Soros stepped forward and he announced, I think it was in the Daily Mirror, and he said, I did it. And then uh, the Times, where um, Lord Rees Mogg had his perch. Rees Mogg, of course, had been the editor-in-chief of the Times for 15 years. Then he became... 
um, a, a governor of the BBC. He was a major, major force in British media at the time. He was also, uh, that is, Lord Rees-Mogg, uh, the father of Jacob Rees-Mogg. He was also a very close personal friend with the royal family. And he was a very close friend of uh, Lord Jacob Rothschild and also a, a business partner of him. So he was one of the most powerful people, not only in the UK, but in the entire world. And he was a bridge. I call him a bridge between worlds because he had he had one foot in the grubby world of the city of London and the Rothschild empire. And then he had another world and uh, another foot in Buckingham Palace, where he was apparently a very close friend of the royals. And he, he played that role and it was in, it was specifically because he was able to bridge those two worlds and play that role that he was able to emerge as the official promoter of George Soros. So he came forward from his perch at the Times of London and he and his team promoted Soros and announced that Soros, they gave him his name, the man who broke the Bank of England. That was their headline in the Times of London. And they created this whole myth that he was, an, he was a, a financial genius who had done this all by himself and made, I think, $2 billion in the process and had in the, in the, in the process had, had done a great service to the British people by keeping them out of the Eurozone. And so uh, Rees Mogg became, in effect, Soros's publicist, his unofficial publicist, uh, singing his praises. And in very short order, within, within a few years, Soros was set up with his, his uh, quantum fund in, um, in a, the Netherlands Antilles, which is uh, the British call those uh, secrecy jurisdictions, I think, uh, banking havens where uh, you can do all kinds of shady business uh, with a complete lack of transparency. And th from his perch in the Netherlands Antilles, he was doing God knows what. But um, one of his investors was the Queen of England, it, it turned out. And um, she was also invested in a company called Rio Tinto, which became uh, embroiled in all sorts of controversies um, in Africa and other countries uh, trying to corner the market in various uh, minimal, mineral and energy resources, uh, all of which I've, I've written about. Um, it's kind of too, it's kind of off topic for now, but, but uh, Rio Tinto got involved with a very ugly situation in the African country of um, uh, Guinea, uh, he, they got in a big fight over mineral rights there, and Soros got involved in that in a, a very, a, a very uh, strange way. It's hard to imagine why he would have even involved himself, but he was clearly taking the side of Rio Tinto, mm -hmm. uh, which again was partially owned by the royal family. Uh, 
Yeah, and seems to be like the board, like people who serve on the board there, seems to be like a haven for people who are getting rewarded by the establishment. That's where you'll go right. sit on the board of one of these companies. And right. It did and... come up a couple of times in my investigations of like the people after their main business is done, then they go to somewhere like that and sit there and manage. Well, I, I didn't I didn't realize it had quite that uh, that it had been institutionalized to quite that. Oh, well, That's I, very I, interesting. Yeah. I would think you would find if you would look at it, it, this is one of the things I'm very interested in. I, I, I'm doing it at the moment with um, embassies during uh, the Cold War and onwards is that if you look um, at these hotbeds of uh, intelligence and establishment linked people, you just find more intelligence linked people and more establishment linked people. So you kind of like it, it darts you off into new investigations all of the time. So you can always find a new, a new you know stone to turn over anyway sorry go on i don't mean to well, well we we must compare notes on that at some point uh, because i'm like extremely that. interested in this subject so anyway um soros popped up uh, in the middle of this um this uh, <clears throat> rio tinto controversy clearly taking the side of rio tinto and using his influence as a UN-affiliated NGO uh, to uh, accuse, uh, th there was an Israeli entrepreneur named uh, Steinmetz who was uh, basically uh, competing with Rio Tinto to get certain mineral rights in Guinea. And long story short, so short uh, Soros intervened using all his power as a UN-approved NGO to make all sorts of false accusations against uh, Steinmetz, get him in huge trouble, eventually get him arrested. The guy was a multi-billionaire and his own uh, Israeli government uh, arrested him. Uh, and according to uh, allegations made by Steinmetz in a certain lawsuit, he claimed that the Obama administration and Obama, uh, President Obama personally had involved himself with Soros and with this uh, apparently British plot to um, to suppress uh, Steinmetz and and to basically to 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 help Rio Tinto win its battle with Steinmetz. Anyway, that's that's a little off the um, the beaten trail. Yeah, you know, I I was brought up uh, quite religious too as a Catholic, my mother's faith, but my father was Jewish. And he mm -hmm. was quite openly disdainful of Christianity. So yeah, yeah. Um, he imparted what I what I like to think was a healthy skepticism about the whole rigmarole. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, you know, you always, as a boy, you want to please your father more mm -hmm. than your mother. And how can you how can you please your father if you're Catholic and your father is Jewish? <laughs> by converting him <laughs> that's how you can please him uh, well I know I know it, it's my own strange spaghetti like journey <laughs> yeah we've all got a bit of that going on trust me we've all got a bit of that so you were saying that, that uh, basically Soros was recruited up by the English um, and a lot of his actions were in line with what the power base want. 
wanted. Well, um, so what was what was Soros to do next then? What, what, what makes you, like, what, what helps to solidify in his actions afterwards that he's really working for the British? Well, let, let me say, <clears throat> let me admit that if you're asking me, can I quote-unquote prove it beyond any doubt whatsoever, uh, I would say no. I can only prove that he acted in concert with very high-level British uh, players, such as Lord William Rees-Mogg, Mm -hmm. and uh, Lord uh, Jacob Rothschild, and indeed with the royal family in terms of handling certain of, of their investments. Um, I put together all the pieces of the puzzle in my article um, about Soros and, and um, basically left the reader to, to decide for themselves. But, but the... <clears throat> What it really comes down to is because of the kinds of operations he was involved in, which had to do with regime change and with economic warfare uh, at a very high level, he could not possibly have been allowed to do these things without being, uh, without working in league with the Western Alliance, with NATO, and with with the um, the Five Eyes Alliance, so the only question is, was he working for the American CIA? As many people allege, you'll see that alleged quite often on uh, the internet and on social media, or was he working for somebody else? And I, in my article. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. In, in my article, I I put my bet on the possibility that he's working for the British. But did I prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt? No, I didn't. And it, you know, it's very hard to prove who somebody is working for in the world of covert operations and intelligence. Mm -hmm. I, how are you going to get that final proof? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed, agreed, agreed. Why yeah. do you think people like um, Soros and Kissinger are allowed up to such high levels? What do you think makes them special? Is it just their skill set and the, the just being in the right place at the right time, or is there something else? Do you think? Well, I think I think in both of those cases, uh, well, of course, one of the things that we're all learning now that we didn't know before, by us I mean the public, John Q. public, um, we're learning that a lot of people who seem to be just your average man on the street, that they actually have family connections that we don't know about. And often those family connections are concealed by name changes and things like that. So I, I would guess that in the case of both um, uh, Mr. Soros and and uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, I think you mentioned, uh, in both of those cases, I suspect there is more to their family histories than we realize, mm -hmm. and th that um, a lot of who they really are in terms of their 
their uh, genealogies um, probably explains a lot of why the establishment took such an interest in them at such an early age. Well, I can can say that Kissinger, from a very young age, um, his his mother was uh, the kosher housemaid for Nahum Goldman, who's one of the founders of Israel um, mm. and the fathers of Zionism. So, I mean, it's it's likely that that uh, and and of course Guido Goldman, who's his son, become Kissinger's best mate eventually. So, I suppose you can also be lucky enough to have family who are aligned or have allegiance. But they, she, she wouldn't have been the kosher housemaid uh, for the Nahum. Goldman. Goldman um, and his family, unless she had been somehow um, accepted probably through family line and the fact of who she was married to, etc. So you are quite right there, I think. Right. And, you know, Soros came from a very prominent family um, in in um, uh, Hungary, where he's from. And that much is known and that much is admitted but probably there's even more to his bloodline than than the standard biographies let us know. And I haven't mm-hmm. cracked that mystery yet. But the fact is, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the fact is he was elevated to a very, very high position in the global hierarchy. And although we're led to believe it was simply because he was such a genius and and you know, he was so good at uh, trading on the markets and all that. Uh, the, the fact is we don't live in a meritocracy and simply being good at something is not a sufficient reason to allow somebody to attain that kind of level. You have to come from the right family, the right mm-hmm. bloodline. You have to be, there are only so many places at the top at that level and, and people are know. selected on a number of criteria it's it's not a meritocracy uh, and now in the case of soros especially um it looks to me as if uh, I, I believe i can't prove it but i believe he was probably recruited uh, right out of school that's the normal way people are recruited uh, he did go uh, to the london school of economics and he uh, he then got involved as a a trader in in uh, the city of London, and he then went to New York in 1956, and he had a meteoric rise to becoming uh, one of the the uh, most seemingly most brilliant, most lucky and wealthiest uh, traders on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And we all know his legend that, you know, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and, and so forth. But um, probably as with most such stories, um, he had, there were family connections behind him that were more important than we're led to believe. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about his British connection is there's no question that Lord William Rees-Mogg was, in some sense, his handler, that, that Rees-Mogg endorsed him. Rees-Mogg was his publicist. He used his, his bully pulpit at, at the times. He used his uniquely 
privileged position as a close friend of the British royal family and as a very close friend of uh, Jacob Rothschild. And uh, of course, um, Lord Rees-Mogg had a son whom he named Jacob. I, I'm guessing he named him after Jacob Rothschild. So uh, he was a very special person. He was a bridge between worlds, um, I, I like to call him. Be really interesting and, to find out if he was named after Jacob Rothschild. Actually, I'll, I'll go and look into that. I'll see if I can find anything around that. Be really well. His, his father was both very a very close personal friend of Jacob Rothschild mm-hmm. and a very close business partner. So, what bigger honor? What bigger honor than to name your son? Yeah, right. Um, so, in in any case, uh, there's no question that Soros was adopted at the very highest levels of the British establishment in the early 90s and and actually before, if you look at some of the details. But it all went public in 1992 with the so-called breaking of the Bank of England. And it was a brilliant psychological operation in the sense that even if to this day even well, even, when to this day I suggest to people that that Soros is working for the British, um, the average person or the people who haven't studied this question deeply will say, "Well, well, he's the one who broke the Bank of England. I mean, he did a terrible disservice to this country. How could he be working for the British?" But he was working for the British elites. He wasn't working for the British people. And he was serving their interests. And and uh, if, for them, if the average British uh, working person or middle class person lost 20% of his net worth as a result of this devaluation, what is that to them? Because they achieved their goal. So um, I, I think the, the relationship between Soros, between Lord Rees-Mogg, and between Jacob Rothschild and the whole sort of gang of City City of London investors that revolves uh, around this, the uh, St. James Place Capital Group. Uh, it's very, very clear that these were the people who were behind Soros in the early 90s when all these events took place. So everything you could say it's circumstantial evidence but it's a whole lot of circumstantial evidence that really points to his being a british asset rather than an american one and i think it's very significant too that as his career progressed uh you know when when uh he famously went after george bush in the 2004 election, he didn't just go after Bush as uh, a candidate. He went after the United States. He he said that he basically said that the U.S. had become a rogue state and had to be taken down. Mm-hmm. And so again, he he was he he became very publicly. Do you wonder if that's like him being made into uh, the antithesis of whatever they want to create on the other side so that they can argue against him? Oh, look, this is this left-wing, liberal, rich man, and we're the ones who are coming to save you. Could there be an element of that to it? 
Uh, on whose part do you mean? Like, I, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the time the establishment likes to create the heroes and villains. So in that case, he's a villain to the American people. It's got to, in my uh, like opinion, be for a reason that he takes that stance. It's either for his own reason that is uh, self-indulgent hubris or his own connections or maybe the British, um, you know, giving a warning to the, the uh, Americans via one of their men assets um but it could also be that he's playing part of a character in the game maybe well yes i i think that absolutely uh, th i think that's exactly what he's doing i i believe in fact that um soros is not so much uh he's less of a financier and more of a propagandist i i think his actual role oh, yes. is to go before the cameras and and play the part of sort of a james bond villain oh. the, and that's where we get this whole idea that was promoted in that new yorker article back in 1995 that he is somehow unaffiliated with any um nation or government it's it, that he's a James Bond villain. He he's only in it for himself. <clears throat> I think he is put in that position so that he uh, to enable him to take the blame for many operations that are conducted by by sovereign governments. Hmm. That so sounds a the, bit like uh, maybe a little elements of Klaus Schwab gets the same treatment as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I believe Klaus Schwab is exactly the same sort of creature yeah. as George Soros and plays exactly the same sort of role where he plays a James Bond villain who seemingly came out of nowhere, has no power structure behind him, but for some mysterious reason, every government in the world kowtows to him. And the thing too, uh, another um, su suggestion that Soros is a British operative as opposed to an American one, and those are the only really two possibilities there are. He's either working for the UK or the US. He's not working for anybody else. But another indication now is uh, Soros has for a long time been uh, advocating the the uh, elimination of the US dollar as as the the um, the global uh, currency. And he started agitating for that back in 1987. And, and saying that uh, we, we had to go to another currency system. So when he, when he did that, he was clearly taking an anti-American position. Mm -hmm. And then beginning in the early 2000s, certain figures in the UK started taking that position as well. So that now all of a sudden, all of a sudden we have this BRICS situation. We have the, the, the UK um semi-efficiently or maybe it's even officially at this point getting behind the agenda of de-dollarization of m moving off the uh the dollar standard and and creating some new currency order uh with the so-called BRICS nations and so this is clearly a UK agenda which the the UK is pursuing for reasons of their own which are not yet clear to me but it was 
a Soros agenda going back at least to 1987. He wrote about it in his book, The Alchemy of Finance. And so you see this on one issue after the other with Soros. It's, it's another bit of evidence. It's not absolute proof, but it's another bit of evidence as to why I would say he's a UK asset as opposed to a US asset. And he's got to be one or the other. He, he, he can only be one or the other because he is working at the apex of the free world power structure. And the apex of the free world power structure is the Anglo-American alliance. And everybody else is secondary. And so is he on the Anglo side or the American side? And I say he is consistently on the Anglo side, according to my analysis. Um, Can I definitively prove that? No, I can't. but it just appears to be the case, and and I I made that case in in my article, uh, how how the British invented George Soros, mm-hmm. and so that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Well, one yeah, well one of the things I find interesting is that all of my research looks at these like big thinkers like uh, who hang around with these people like Klaus Schwab and the like, like Herman Kahn, and he he was very clear that um, the current that for for them in like 1967 when he was writing this, the current establishment was um, the Anglo-American, Britain and America close together, and the the the, the winning move was to get Europe to join on their side the whole of europe and then they would be able to overpower all the other major blocks with that um unit that has been so successful and after i think in when the intelligence operations in um after world war ii and during world war ii and after world war ii led the british to start um trying to get the americans to do things by doing intelligence operations aimed at america and america were then doing the same thing to the british and they kept doing that backwards and forwards i think eventually they got to a point where they were like okay we're on the same side so let's put in this same amount of effort but to the same agenda um and and since i I would say the late 60s uh early 60s onwards um the the there's been a very uh significant level of cooperation between um intelligence assets in both america and britain it looks like that sort of hegemony is is sealed sealed in and they're heading towards uh something bigger so it makes sense then that if you're uh george soros and you're from a country like hungary which is kind of a little bit out of of course coming out of the so soviet um sphere of influence but uh it is kind of in europe but had really recently in world war ii fought on the wrong side and got in you know always was a little bit of a naughty boy hungary's positioned really well not to easily be taken and stuff so likely to produce these people who are you going to go with if you're george soros you've got a choice between two power blocks haven't you you see if you're going to go with europe or you're going to go with uh america and britain if you're working at those high level um operations of course i i would see that 
that that that Britain would be the obvious um, choice due, due to the fact that he's on the European continent, and if you're going to join with that block over there, you may as well do it with the 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 one in the middle and where all of the power seems to emanate from, because that is really important to note that every time I'm looking into stuff, it ends up back in two places. It ends up back in the halls of Harvard and and then a little bit earlier in London. <laughs> so and Oxford and Cambridge and the usual places with the usual suspects. Um I really in really happy to hear you um talk about uh Jacob Rees Mogg's father and, and his influence as well because that makes a lot more sense to other things. I was investigating well back when I was a bit more like when I was left wing when I believed like I was on the right side of politics. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg was this right-wing figure in the Conservative Party that seems so easy to poke fun of, but there must be a serious aspect to his um, tomfoolery and this 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 guise he puts on as being a flippant every man of the establishment. <laughs> um, uh, it reminds me very much. He has <laughs> very much in his gait, in his stature, in his size, in the way he presents himself. Is very much like John Kenneth Galbraith. Um, he, he's a he's a diplomatic sort crossing boundaries on on what seems like an extreme end of a spectrum and even though John Kenneth Galbraith was on the left and uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is on on the right I've always found his rise extremely interesting because he's such a character there must be something more to it um, and I remember investigating I think it was Downside Abbey where there would be a cover-up of a, a priest doing things with kids um, and he was heavily involved in that and I thought oh that might be a place to look into um and then i realized the power he had seemed to be bigger than what i had expected but then everything else kicked off and life takes you away and then you don't get around to it afterwards so i may seeing as i'm going to be um centering in on a lot of british stuff at the moment i may go back to the resmog family and and see if i can dig up anything there because it sounds like you're in the heart of the elite um so what what other subjects have you been because you you've obviously got a massive uh career a long career behind you of covering all sorts of uh, topics. I notice you, uh, your books don't seem to be like you know one style. You 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 dip your toes in many many ponds. Um. So so what what's some been to, apart from like Soros and the British establishment? What have been some of your main focus of research over your career so far that has really intrigued you and really uh, you think people really need to understand? Well, first, let me say um, <clears throat> the wide range of subject matter of my books that that you referenced has it has something to do with my my interests to some extent, but it really has more to do with the fact that um, unlike many people who succeeded in becoming a full-time author, as I did for about 10 years. I, I uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, really more in the 90s, I, I simply wrote books and I had some pretty big bestsellers. Now, unlike most people who succeed in becoming a full-time author, um, 
I succeeded by my own wit, by my own skill. I I did not have uh, family connections or any of the kinds of things that are so important in the book publishing industry. And so I had to be very practical uh, in a way that many people don't. And uh, I, in order to make an actual living doing it, I had to think very shrewdly each time I wrote a book uh, about, uh, I had to think about who's going to buy this book, how many copies can I sell, how can it be marketed? And so this caused me to write a lot of self-help business books and uh, books on all kinds of different seemingly unrelated subjects. And I've been criticized for that. You know, some people have told me through the years, well, Richard, we don't know if you should write this or that book because you're just you just seem all over the place with your subject matter. And I think that really has to do with just the practical reality of being a, a middle class person who's not who came into this very elite world of New York book publishing, in which there are a lot of people of privilege who get to write about whatever they want and don't have to think about how do you, how you make a living. And I, I don't want to sound as if I'm a, some sort of class warrior or something of the sort, but I, I, I do think that uh, the world of New York book publishing is a very elite world, and a lot of the people in it don't even write the books whose names, uh, you know, when they put their names on them. And... I was a person who really did the work. The books that I wrote actually had my name. And I was up against a book publishing industry that really didn't want a person like me to write books, a middle-class person who's not related to other famous literary figures or some other sort of figures. They really didn't want me to write books at all. Um, what they wanted me to do was ghostwrite for other people, mm -hmm. the kinds of people who are supposed to be writing books, uh, people who belong to the right families and who have the right connections and so forth. And people like me who actually have the, let's say, mechanical skills to actually write a book are supposed to work in the shadows in the basement and not have our names on them. And I, I, I hope, I, I feel almost guilty. Even I feel like I'm telling tales out of school. Um, you must, say, you have a strange influence on me, uh, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I me, do this. I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you're, you're making me uh, behave like a very bad boy. Uh, you're not. You're not supposed to say these things. But really, the way it works in the book publishing world, a person like me is actually not supposed to write books yeah, yeah, yeah. and have their names on them. When I first met with a real top level literary agent in New York, uh, I was told in no uncertain terms, "You are a writer," meaning you write. Mm -hmm. You are not an author meaning you don't get your name on the book. The, wow. the names on the books are the names of people who can't write, but they have some status as a result of the fact that they're famous, they're celebrities, they're business leaders, or they're whatever, they're, you know, they're yoga instructors, who knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the people who actually write the books are 
deemed to be, uh, you know, a, a sort of clerk type of person, as a person who's a technician who works mm-hmm. in the back room and is most definitely not supposed to have their names on it. I feel and, the people, I, I see, I, I, I'm around the people who are trying to break that mold all the time and getting their books out there, but it's kind of hard in amongst that sort of circle of, or that's culture to get uh, independent work out with your own name on. So you can see why people would choose to do it. Yes. And, and I, I would have, I would have done it. I was getting tempted, but, um, and I hit, I did do a little of that, but the fact is I just, I, I just couldn't accept the idea that my lifelong dream to be an author was not to be because I can write. Because I mean that was literally what I was being told. If you can actually <laughs> write, you don't get your name on the book. The people whose names are on the book are people who deserve to be there because of their status in society. And you, as a writer, have no status in society. You're just a technician or a servant or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I fought against it. I was very lucky to find a sort of offbeat publisher uh prima pub publishing and uh a, a very nice man named uh ben dominitz who believed in me and for about 10 years i wrote for him and his smallish publishing company but then i got swallowed he got swallowed up by uh random house mm. and then random house got swallowed up by uh, bertelsman a german company oh, wow. and um my career uh, as a best-selling author uh, suffered uh, once those ownership changes happened, and I'm not actually allowed to tell you why. Ah, right, okay. okay. In fact, I'm not actually allowed to tell you that I'm not allowed to tell you why. So I'm being a very bad boy. <laughs> Dave, yeah, I'm doing it again. Stop it, stop it. Protect yourself, goddammit, Richard. Um, no, I, I, it's, a re- it's a weird world you enter into there, isn't it, where suddenly that propaganda of someone else is the powerful thing and your own truth and the truth that you can find is a thing that doesn't sell unless it's wrapped in a different uh, cloth and things are jiggled about a little bit. And it's very telling to the society we live in because, I mean, it is a post-truth era after all. Um, and so what better way than to have books that aren't written by the people who are writing them you know uh or the people who are supposedly um writing them and i see i i seen this a lot in history as well you know uh when you research some of these establishment types and at this time they started writing a book and in actual fact they've got a team of people in a room writing a book and they're going in once every now and again going how's it going gang did you get all of the bits that i suggested in there and so so you know yeah you see this has been going on for donkey's years and I'm pretty positive that a lot of these people um, have had that sort of, it's very, it's, it's actually challenging where as, as someone who wants to start writing books, because of course I've tackled some big subjects. I tend to write long form articles. I tend to, to go towards series. So by the time I finished a series, it's like 30,000 words and it's really uh, condensed down into a subject. So it seems it, it, how, how many, um, how much subject matter do you need for a good book, do you think, if I was to enter into the world of being a published author, if I managed to? 
Well, I, I've never worked it out to a formula, but I, usually what I do is I write articles first. And I just start writing articles on a certain theme. And at a certain point, I figure I've got enough out mm. there to do it. And uh, that's what I'm doing right now with these books about um, basically about the British. You, you know, I'm, uh, I've been doing this for um, two going on three, three years. I guess I started putting them in article form. First, I started t doing tweets, long tweets. Then I started doing articles. But they're all on the same theme, how the British invented George Soros. Um, uh, I have my biggest one. It's 18,000 words long. Uh, it's um, how how the British invented communism and blamed yeah, it on I the did. Jews. Yeah, I saw, <laughs> I, I saw that. I, I'm definitely going to have to indulge in that one because I, I, I do I do think that's... Um... Sounds about uh, sounds about right. Uh, it to be perfectly honest, communism keeps getting reinvented all of the time, and now it's like uh, is parts of it are being adapted into stakeholder capitalism. So we we've got a little bit there. I mean, that's what I think Klaus Schwab did really good. Uh, really well is joining these ideologies into one ideology so they can have the worst bits that they love so much out of all of these different ideologies and stuff them together into something that yeah it looks like techno communism or at least communitarianism or something along those lines um where do you see the future going then i mean as uh, you've been you've been doing this for a long time you've been watching the way the world turns um we're entering into obviously crazy times i mean we're at the end game in israel um where do you think the world's turning now in the next 10 20 years well um it is my thesis in this series of articles i'm writing now uh, soon to be a book that we are actually still living in a world which is controlled primarily by British elites. This is actually what I'm claiming. Um, it is my claim, rightly or wrongly, that the power transfer that supposedly occurred, let's say, after World War II or during World War II, supposedly the, the Pax Britannica morphed into the Pax Americana. Mm. And supposedly the United States became the great uh, empire that rules the world. I am, I am arguing expressly against that. I, I think what actually happened, and I think I've already made a very strong case for it in my series of articles, is that a, a group, a cabal of very high-level uh, British uh, aristocrats and power brokers beginning uh, as early as the 1880s, started making very highly specific plans for reorganizing the British Empire. Mm -hmm. At that point, they realized that uh, the United States and Russia, and to some extent Germany, were going to supplant them as the, as the most powerful empires in the world unless they did something, they saw specifically, that is, these British imperialists, they saw that their model of empire, a maritime empire uh, on many continents separated by water, they saw that that was not going to be militarily 
defensible against these land empires that were springing up, the US, Russia, and Germany, and that these land-based empires had a natural military and economic advantage because they were concentrated on a particular landmass and they could cut the British supply lines pretty much any way they wanted. So a lot of this was based on very hard-nosed military uh, assessments of what would happen in an all-out world war where all the great powers were involved. And the British, um, being the brilliant uh, empire makers that they are, they foresaw long before anybody else did exactly what was going to happen in the 20th century, and they began planning for it at least as early as the 1880s. And I've written about all this. And, and they formed a group which came to be called the Roundtable Group, mm -hmm. which was dedicated to this very problem, how, how to survive this trauma, the, the, this, this, um, how to survive what, what British elites clearly recognized decades in advance would be the utter destruction of their empire by the rise of these land-based competitors, the US, mm. Russia, and Germany in particular. These land-based empires they foresaw were going to be able to destroy their sea-based empire because it was too spread out and it was not militarily defensible. Yeah. So, so what these British imperialists decided, and, and most of these plans were eventually published in books and uh, newspaper articles and what have you. It's all public. It's None of it is secret. It's just that uh, people ignore this. But uh, they came, what, they, what they decided, and this was the famous roundtable group, uh, which you may be familiar with, um, so it was supposedly originally formed by Cecil Rhodes, but Cecil Rhodes was only in his mid-20s when he supposedly formed it. <laughs> and it, it was clearly not him. It was it. Mm. And one of its biggest uh, proponents was, in fact, uh, the heir to the throne who became uh, King Edward the mm. uh, seventh, was it? The one who succeeded yeah. uh, echoes Queen of, Victoria. Echoes of Charles and the Great Reset. Right, right. And so um, th the the crown prince was the leader of this movement uh, of that became the round table. And its whole purpose was to try to anticipate the, the breakup, the inevitable breakup of Britain's maritime empire mm -hmm. and how and to figure out how to deal with the inevitable and seemingly fatal competition from these rising empires, especially the United States. So the plan that was made was to destroy the German and Russian empires and to do so by forming an alliance with the American empire and then to merge with the, with the Americans into a global English-speaking empire that uh, would rely on American military power and American wealth to act as the enforcer, but would actually be run from London. Mm -hmm. And it's the part about being run from London that people don't get and that they don't believe. Because often, you know, people will say, uh, especially now when I bring this up on 
on Twitter or X, as I guess we're supposed to call it now. And so often I get these British people saying, have you been to London lately? Do you see what's happening? How can you, how can you say something? So, how can you imagine that Britain is ruling the world? But the, the fact is, you know, have you been to the Rio Grande lately? I mean, have you, have you been to America lately? The same thing is happening. And, and it's the same people allowing it to happen, the open borders, the complete uh, abandonment of any attempt to control our borders. It doesn't even do matter if it relates to like the uh, like the so-called Kalergi document and like his very short piece that he talks about that. So it doesn't matter if it relates to something like that in any way. It's just happening. It's just the process of of um, the borders breaking down, and those borders are breaking down on purpose because they're letting yes. them break it down and. They're right. letting them break down for their own own reasons. So it doesn't even have to be a grand conspiracy theory. It's just, again, loads of self-interested actors at this point see that the best way is to do that so that the big guys at the top get what they want. So, Right. And, and the thing is, um, so I get in these conversations sometimes with, with uh, British people, you know, on, on X, and they'll say, well, how can you say, you know, this is a British plot? Look look at the deplorable state of our country and so forth. And I just say, hey, you know, look at the deplorable state of our country. We're, we're not doing much better in case you haven't noticed. Yes, we're starting wars all over the world that we can't afford. We're, we're in, a, in a hopelessly spiraling deficit that's going to utterly destroy our economy. And unless something is done, the course we're taking now uh, we're going to, we're, our country is going to break up into pieces. We're, there won't be a United States. We're going to go totally broke. We're going to have uh, a financial catastrophe leading to a political catastrophe. We already have separatist forces that are being uh, encouraged on an international level by all the usual suspects who like to break up countries. And so I'm just, by by way of saying that, I'm just saying the, that the plight of the British people, um, which is very real and and uh, which I, I'm very cognizant of, is a completely separate issue from the plans of the British elites who never have cared about the British people. Mm -hmm. Never. I mean, at the very height of what we think was the British Empire, look what Charles Dickens was writing about. He was writing about what's going on actually on the streets. And it's yeah. no different today. What happens on the streets is no concern of theirs. That's no concern of the Reese Moggs and a really, all, really interesting. Yeah, really interesting point. The establishment plan, the idea of getting rid of a lot of the the nerdy wells on the street. A point I can't remember who it was was put that Charles Dickens wouldn't exist if they had gone through um, a eugenics program in Britain because his father was seen as not fit really basically mentally fit so mm -hmm. um uh, it, it's very likely that they wouldn't have had certain parts of the history i just thought i'd interject with that right and and um now the thing is it is very clear um there are certain books you can read i've got to put together a book list for people but you can read books and many of them you can download for free 
uh, from Google Books and, and um, other places on the internet. And you can read these old books and they just lay out what the plan, you know, the, the, the great debate that was going on in the 1880s, the 1890s, the 1900s, of all of these um, imperial federalists, they called themselves. They were people in, in Great Britain who were, who were uh, trying to figure out how to preserve British power in the new world that they knew was coming. And they had the foresight to know that it was coming before anybody else did. And so they formulated this plan that everything depended on bringing the United States back into the fold. They're, yes, they had to they had to work with all the English speaking peoples. They had to reorganize the Commonwealth. They had to give to some of these um, Commonwealth realms, as they were called, like Canada uh, and Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, the English-speaking Commonwealth realms. They they were especially important. They had to find some formula that would satisfy them, so that they would all come to the aid of Great Britain in World War One. They, they were planning World War One more than a decade in advance, mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that becomes clear when you read these books, which were freely published in public. Mm -hmm. And there's no question they were planning it. They knew that they had to take down Germany and they knew they had to take down Russia, even though Russia was their quote unquote ally during World War One. Do you think knew... um, technological advances was the impetus like it was really probably with World War Two as well? Well, uh, of course, technological advances are an extremely important driver of geopolitics. Every country, every government and polity has to adapt to uh, advances in technology because they affect trade flows, mm -hmm. but especially because they affect weaponry and, and military strategy, uh, which in the 20th century, of course, exploded into an almost yeah, yeah. science fiction I level mean, yeah of, yeah of world war one was was everything from uh for early flamethrowers all of the types of machine guns you could possibly people just walking into machine gun fire and chemical warfare galore you know right right and but the thing that was clear from the beginning and it's fascinating especially as an american to read some of these british writings because they just talk on and on about how can we bring the Americans back into the fold? And it's, it's as an American, you kind of feel like you're listening at the keyhole to the grown-ups making plans for you. And everything that they planned to do happened because they planned well in advance to start World War I. The, this plan was already very much in the works in the, by 1901. By 1909, they were they were uh, switching into high gear. They were making actual uh, agreements and treaties with all the English-speaking um, countries, uh, giving trying to figure out what they wanted in return for participating in what would become World War One. Mm -hmm. And the United States, of course, was the biggest problem because we were not part of the Commonwealth. We, we were not any longer a British uh, possession. But 
nonetheless, the British felt very confident that they could manipulate us because they had they had invented us. We were a British invention. They had created us, they had ruled us, and they had always manipulated us. And this is the secret history that, that I and others have been trying to bring back, which Americans don't learn about in school, is the, the secret history of just how much England has been involved in our affairs ever since the revolution. We're, we're, we tend to think, well, we fought the revolution, then we were independent, and we didn't have to worry about the British anymore. Oh, yes, we had another war with them in 1812, but that was resolved too. And that was the end of it. So that's kind of what you get if you go to school in America. Yes, we had a little trouble with Britain. They didn't want to give us independence. And yes, then they invaded us and burned down the White House. But that was all settled and then it was over. That's completely not what happened. What actually happened, and, and here I'm not talking about offbeat theories or conspiracy theories. This is ma mainstream academic knowledge, but it's not public knowledge. It's not popularly known. You're not going to see documentaries about this on TV. You're not going to learn about it in school. Even if you're in college and you take courses in American history, you're not going to learn about much of your American history. You're not going to learn that the British Empire was unrelentingly hostile to the fledgling United States, unrelentingly mm -hmm. hostile mm -hmm. and waged mm -hmm devastating economic warfare on us continually from the moment the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. They were continually attacking us either through military means or non-military means with the purpose of destroying our economy, breaking us up and cause and ultimately in their plans, weakening us to the point where they, we could be reabsorbed into their empire and into their European system. And this was a continual war. It was sometimes a hot war, sometimes a cold war, but it reached its culmination in the American Civil War. And I have written another article about that called um, how, how the British caused the American Civil War. And they absolutely did, where they... Um, Basically, what had happened in the Civil War is the British Empire had succeeded in reabsorbing the southern states into the empire. They had actually become part of Britain's informal empire, as it's called, called which means the British were not, they didn't claim it as a colony. They didn't claim it politically. They weren't under any obligation to, to station troops there to defend it but it was under their economic control because the South became a, under British influence, became a cotton growing monoculture. And 80% of that cotton was exported to England. 80% yeah, yeah. of it. And it's, 
Uh, quite amazing. I, I one of the research, like a bit of research I did, was in hatters in a place called Atherston. People who were making hats, and before 1840, in the proper felt hat machines got uh, introduced, it had been exclusively um, just making straw hats for the slave trade in America, um, mm-hmm. and that had been going on for a long time. And basically, there was all different parts of the British Empire that were making lots of money off selling things. To, to for the slaves to use, let alone slavery itself. Right, and and this this situation it it, uh, it gets very confusing for many British uh, people and br- even British historians to understand because British people have been propagandized to see themselves as the great champions of emancipation you know who at a certain point (laughs) decided to stamp out slavery and they did do that for their own reasons they had their own geopolitical reasons for wanting to stamp out the global slave trade but they made no effort whatsoever to stamp out slavery in the united states Mm -hmm. because they were literally investors in this in the slave uh system in the united states it was that system which enabled the American cotton, which was the highest quality cotton in the world, to be harvested and produced so cheaply so the British could then buy it cheaply. And this was the basis of the great British textile industry, which mm-hmm. which was their dominant industry. In Again, still, to- still, even even up until like this sixties, seventies, eighties, textile industry. Again, loads of really interesting, uh, like uh, Eckhart von Kunzberg, who went um, to school with uh, people like Duke of Edinburgh and other people. Um, they. they uh, he his granddaughter is Laura Kunzberg, who was the head of political editor for the um, BBC. Um, but he was uh, his son was also textile factory in Peru, I believe it was. And mm-hmm. uh, when the when the laws changed in the seventies or eighties to give him workers' rights, he got special exemption that his factory was the only factory in the country that didn't have to abide by those legislation. You know, they they've got an extreme amount of power and they just seem to be there on uh, sitting in a factory making textiles of course like the old-fashioned british do right yeah well see the the thing is what i wrote about in my article is the extraordinary extent to which the british actually caused the american civil war they planned it they caused it they they essentially created the uh, Confederacy. They they uh, as early as 1827, I think there was um, well there was a man whose whose name now escapes me, but he was he was a British uh, agent, a, a British uh, covert operator, who came from Manchester. Gosh, I can't remember his name, but he was first sent. He, he graduated from Oxford. He was recruited into British intelligence. He was first sent to France, where he whipped up the, helped to whip up the uh, French Revolution. Mm. And in this same article, I describe how essentially one revolution led to the other. The, the, the British secret services co-opted the French Revolution and turned it their way, uh, which is uh, a very interesting story. And this man 
whose name I can't remember, uh, he was instrumental in it. Then he went to the United States. He went to, I think, South Carolina. He became, um, he became a, a very prominent person. Uh, and in, I, I, I just said the year, I think it was 1826, he suddenly got up and said, um, this just isn't working anymore, this American experiment. You know, we Southerners, he said in his British accent, his Oxford accent, he said, we Southerners just can't get along with those Northerners. We should just break up the country and they go their way, we go our way. And so this actually became, and it's known in American history as the, the speech that launched Southern secessionism. Mm -hmm. And it was made by, by this British spy, this British uh, covert operator uh, who had previously helped whip up the, the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, you can see the, the involvement of the British Secret Services from that moment on, instigating and building up the whole confederate movement the whole idea of the south having a sense of itself as a separate nation but most especially uh, driving the move for southern independence was their economic dependence on great britain mm -hmm. and in the 1850s a very famous book was written uh called cotton uh i think it was called cotton is king and uh, it was written by a man named Christie, a, a Southerner. But basically what was happening at that time in the 1850s is that the North was trying to put a lot of pressure on the South to say, look, why don't you start trading with us, your neighbors in the North, and helping us build up our textile industry when we can trade internally instead of sending all your cotton overseas to help all those foreigners in Britain. And so... This man, Christie, he wrote this book, Cotton is King, to basically answer these people in the North and to say, we have no interest in doing business with you Yankees up there in the North <laughs> because you don't have the markets and you don't have the money to buy all our cotton. You can't afford to buy all of our cotton. And even if you could, you don't have the markets to market it globally. And the British do. And so mm. it is not worth our while to do business with you. We are always going to do business with the British. And, you know, you can get lost, you mm. Yankees. Yeah. And this book really became the, the um, it became the casus belli. It, bec it became the spark that actually ignited the war. Because when this man Christie wrote that book, and it came out in several editions, he was basically saying, we don't want you Northerners anymore. We don't need you. We have the English. And they're taking very good care of us. They're making us rich. And we don't need you. So that's how the war actually started, because the Civil War. Because the more the South resisted these entreaties from the north to try to work out some economic arrangement where they could help each other the more belligerent the north became and they tried to slap on they did slap on tariffs to make it uh, difficult or impossible 
to, for the South to carry on their, their cotton trade with England. And very soon after, the whole thing exploded in war. And the British encouraged that war. They armed the South. They built uh, ships for them. They put thousands of British troops in Canada in preparation to invade uh, the northern states. And they worked with the French under Napoleon III. They, they uh, landed an army in Mexico, which took over the country, installed the Emperor Maximilian, who was an Austrian prince. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason for doing this was that the, the British and the French regime of Napoleon III, which was actually a client regime of Britain, the British had installed Napoleon mm -hmm. III in France. So he was really working for them. So between the British and their French clients, they put troops on the ground, a very large French army in Mexico, a somewhat smaller British army in Canada. They put them there just in case, but their actual plan wasn't to invade the U.S. What they planned to do at a critical moment, they were waiting for the South to, to win a decisive battlefield victory. Then they were going to give an ultimatum to the North and in enforce a naval blockade that would totally destroy the nor northern economy, the northern will, and would have ended the war very shortly. They were right about to do that, and it surely would have worked. The only thing that saved us, by us, speaking as a New Yorker, as a Yankee, uh, the only thing that saved us, that saved the Union, was the intervention of Imperial Russia because Lincoln had reached out to the Tsar Alexander II, and he had his own reasons to want to thwart the British and the French because they were causing him a lot of trouble in his part of the world. And so in 1863, uh, in uh, I think it was late in the year in the fall, Tsar Alexander II moved the entire Russian fleet to North America. He put one half of the fleet in New York, the other half in San Francisco. And although the Russian fleet, of course, could not have stood up to the British fleet, or, and especially the combined French and British fleets, they didn't want to go there. They didn't want to start a world war. And so he basically, the, the Tsar basically put his entire navy uh, in, in the way of the French and British fleets, and it was a standoff. It, it was calling their bluff, and they, 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 the Russians were there for many months. I think as long as a year, and finally, the British and the French backed down, and uh, the Battle of Gettysburg was won. The war turned in the Union's favor, and it, we really owed that victory almost entirely to that Russian intervention. And mm -hmm. I tell this whole story in my article. And I can tell you, um, Johnny, growing up as an American and learning American history in school, we never heard a word of this. Mm -hmm. We never heard a word about this Russian intervention, not a word. Nor did we hear about the hostility of the English uh, and the French and how they were backing up the Confederacy. This has been wiped from our history, wiped from our history books. So I and some other people have been slowly trying to bring back this forgotten story. And it, it's just an illustration of what's really been going on beyond, behind the facade of fake history, mm -hmm. where 
we supposedly fought a revolution and then we fought the war of 1812 and then there was no more trouble with England. And then a mm. hundred years later, we're the best of friends and we're all marching off to war to beat the Huns in World War One. It didn't happen mm. like that. We had nothing but trouble with England all through the 19th century. They were yeah. they, There was continual hostility on many levels and especially in terms of economic warfare because the the Bank of England really controlled our economy. And if you look at even mainstream historians, they will admit that the U.S. economy was essentially controlled by the Bank of England right up through the 1850s. And some historians um, will even say that, that that was the case right up to World War I. So there's so much hidden history that we don't understand. Yeah. And most of this history has to do with underestimating the power of Great Britain and the power of the British Empire and the power of the city of London and its financiers to push the United States around. This mm -hmm. has been systematically underestimated to make it seem as if the U.S. was somehow living in some blessed state where we were in our own world and completely unafraid and unthreatened by anything happening in the old world, when in fact we were always we were always in a con continual war with England, either hot war or cold war. And the war was about control. The war was about the fact that the British never accepted our independence. They did not accept the outcome of the War of Independence. They were never reconciled to it. But they also knew because of their own experience, of their own, their own centuries of experience, they knew there were many different ways to control other countries, mm -hmm. aside from direct colonization or military occupation, that there were many ways to do it through banking and through managing the trade balance and so forth and so on. And so the British always understood that American independence was something that mainly existed on paper, that there were all kinds of ways of managing that independence and recolonizing parts of the U.S. as they did with the cotton-growing South or simply uh, financially exploiting other parts uh, of the country in, in various different ways. There's a whole fascinating history of how the British financial interests managed this relationship uh, with the United States throughout the 19th century. And then finally came the 20th century. And that's when this roundtable movement came up. That's when the British said to themselves, you know, it's all been a lot of fun, you know, playing cat and mouse with the Americans, but now we have to resolve this problem completely. And we, we, we can no longer afford to play games with the United States because now we have Russia, uh, which is rapidly industrializing. We have Germany, which is rapidly industrializing and building a great uh, naval fleet and merchant fleet. And so something must be done. And so this is when the plans for World War I 
were being made. And the key to that plan was to reach out to the United States and make a military alliance with us and bring us into the war on the side of the British for the very first time since the revolution and the War of 1812, mm -hmm. that we would finally be allies of the British instead of adversaries. And this plan worked. The plan worked. And the way it worked was the British installed uh, Woodrow Wilson. And through Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson was controlled by a British agent. His name was Colonel Edward House. And when I say he was a, a British agent, he was actually an American but he was a Southern American from Texas. His father was an Englishman. His mother and father came from England, settled in Texas before the Civil War, and became uh, very active in blockade running uh, during the Civil War. Uh, they had a fleet of merchant ships running back and forth to England with supplies of cotton, trading them for munitions, and so forth. So he, his father was a British agent, and he became a British agent. He and all his brothers were sent to England to boarding schools, even though they were born in America. And they were inculcated from birth with the idea that their first loyalty was to England. Yeah. And so this this man... That's uh, an Englishman. That's an Englishman. <laughs> yes. yes. And he I was know, as a Welshman, I know, I know. Right. We, we, was... we, we got 500 years of occupation behind us so far. Right. Well, I know. I know. Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, is what you said is correct. That's an Englishman. And this Colonel House was an Englishman, even though he was born in Texas. He was totally English. He was raised English. He was indoctrinated English. And so he became the closest advisor to uh, Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson was a Confederate. He had been a young man, 12, 13 years old, uh, maybe as old as 14, uh, when the South surrendered. But he had he had lived in, um, I forget what state, maybe S S South Carolina, possibly. But he had been a Confederate. He was brought up as a Confederate, and his whole administration were Confederates, or ex-Confederates, or children of Confederates. And the Confederates still remembered that the British had been their supporters and their allies, in the Civil War, and they still felt a loyalty towards them. So this Colonel House was a British agent, and he was planted right next to Woodrow Wilson and absolutely controlled him. He had a Svengali-like control over him. And this man, House, we have all his letters, collected letters that he sent to uh, high officials in London, constantly reporting on his progress in manipulating Woodrow Wilson. Um, he he formed a relationship with a man named um, oh boy uh, what was his name I can't remember his name the, the, he was the British um, what was his position he had he had a diplomatic position he he was the British attaché or something like that for North America, or at least for the United States. Mm -hmm. And his name was uh, Wiseman. Uh, was it William Wiseman? Something like that. So this man, Wiseman, lived in the same apartment building as Colonel House. Um, 
There are some rumors that there may have been a sexual relationship between them. Uh, there was a very close friendship at, at, in any case. And eventually, uh, and, and this man, Wiseman, was the head of, of British intelligence in, in America. So it was extremely improper for this close advisor to President Wilson to be in the same apartment house and having this very close sex, uh, personal relationship, which may have been even more than personal. And the whole thing was improper, but then Colonel House brought this man, uh, Wiseman, into, he, he introduced him to the president, and they all became a group together. They even went mm -hmm. vacationing together, they took fishing vacations together, uh, 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 causing jealousy amongst others in Wilson's cabinet. So basically, between this British spymaster, Wiseman, and his recruit, uh, uh, Colonel House, Wilson was more or less uh, completely under the control mm -hmm. of British intelligence and apparently had no objection to that. Yeah. And under their supervision, he set up the Federal Reserve System. Oh, wow. And under their supervision, he brought the U.S. into World War I to help Britain. And under their supervision, he went, uh, he, Wilson actually traveled to Europe to take part in the Versailles uh, Treaty negotiations with Wiseman and Colonel House at his side trying to control him. And um, what happened, to make a long story short, is that the U.S. Senate completely rejected the Versailles Treaty. Uh, and the interesting thing is, too, that, that a myth was created that somehow Woodrow Wilson was this great idealist who wanted to set up the League of Nations. That's It's a complete lie. The League of Nations was a British idea in which the British had been formulating and pushing since the the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And they pushed they started pushing it very hard at the outset of World War One. In fact, H.G. Wells, who was a British uh intelligence operative uh, at the time, a very high level one, uh he wrote a book called The War to End War, something like that. And he wrote it within days of the outbreak of World War One, where he basically mm -hmm. laid out the plan and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to set up a peace league after the war. We're going to bring the United States into it. We're mm -hmm. going to do this, that, and the other. And everything happened just as he said in yeah, this yeah, book. Yeah. I know he and, was pretty powerful. Yeah. Right. And so uh, all of this had been planned by British intelligence in great detail, and they somehow installed Woodrow Wilson, they, knowing his personal weaknesses of character, perhaps they had blackmail material on him, who knows. But uh, he was a very unlikely person to be president. He was a university president, and uh, so he, he was escalated very rapidly into the presidency where he immediately came under the control of British intelligence. And all this is indisputable, even though they don't teach it to us in school this mm -hmm. way. Once you start looking at the primary sources and all that, it's, it's absolutely indisputable. Now, the thing that's temporarily stopped this British plan is the U.S. Senate. 
because the U.S. the the U.S. cannot make any foreign treaty without the ratification of the U.S. Senate. So, after Wilson came up with his fourteen points and all his plans for forming this permanent alliance and global government and League of Nations in cahoots with the British Empire, he had the inconvenience of having to present it to the American people mm-hmm. in the form of the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. Senate just threw it out. And yeah. this was Right, and this was largely because of the very large population of Irish Americans uh, in, in the United States who were possibly the most powerful interest group in the U.S. at that time. Some would argue they still are. That's it's very interesting what you're saying there because um, I know that later I, I've talked about uh, in my Black Hand series in the uh, fifth part, I talk about Ivor Bryce, who was a member of the OSS and later on uh, helped write James Bond with uh, Ian Fleming and helped create that uh, mythos and was, of course, an intelligence agent um, and w- whose job was um, to try at one point um, he set up a guy being found. He was actually a Welshman who was dressed up as a German um, pilot. Uh, he had already died, but they had they had faked a crash and put his body in the water with a suitcase attached to it with a handcuff and fake maps of Cuba in it, uh, just <laughs> off the um, uh, the coast of Spain. So the, when they dragged him in, it got back uh, to the uh, Americans eventually. They were based there. That um, the British, uh, the the Nazis were planning to put bases on Cuba, mm-hmm. and the, the that plan wouldn't be very good, except you know to, just to trick people or go into a paper. But it wasn't for that. It was specifically so that when it got to the Senate stage, that the Senate would change their whole approach to Cuba um, and would change the national approach to Cuba, which suddenly become more hostile and it hadn't been beforehand. Um, but was of course influenced by British intelligence who are pushing uh, always pushing and obviously the Senate is that very important it's we, we we've been going for over two hours now so I'm I'm aware that that people at home uh, have, have got a lot to take in because that's a lot to take in where do you think the British stand today when as we close up where do you think the British stand do you think they still stand as um it, they, they still have significant enough control uh, over American politics and American society and American culture. That means that they, they still are ruling the roost. I, I think they do. And, and the reason, the reason I believe it is simply because I know I've studied how the British empire has operated through the ages and a, a lot of people don't understand this. They say, well, look at England, you know, look at the British Isles. It's so small and America is so big. Well, Brazil is big too and Russia's big, but that's not really the issue, bigness. Being big just means you have a lot of room and you have a lot of natural resources to be exploited. That's not what causes you to be powerful. British power lies very specifically in their strategy of laying off one country against another of triangulation and what they have typically done throughout the entire history of the british empire is they'll go to one country and say that other country you know they'll go to country a and say looks like country b is getting too strong 
let's you and I team up and let's humble country B so they won't be so much of a threat. And then they'll go to war, they'll beat up country B, then the British will sidle over to country B and say, oh, you poor country B, look what country A did to you. Let's build you up and then we'll go after country B. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, but this is this is the actual game of balance of power that that the British, they didn't invent it. I mean, the Romans did the same thing. Every great empire has done the same thing, but the British raised it to a, a, a science and they brought it into the modern world and they're still doing it today. And so that's why England doesn't need to be a large <clears throat> populous country with great resources because what they do is they play off large countries against each other mm -hmm. in this balance game of balance of power in this game of triangulation and so i think the british are still doing that today it's very clear that they're doing it because now we have that we have uh certain people in the british government saying let's let's basically uh destroy the united states economy by getting off the dollar and uh, joining with all these other countries, uh, the BRICS countries, to create a new currency that that will, um, you know, including Russia, China, and all these others. And Great Britain has been uh, openly um, working towards this end uh, since the beginning of the 2000s, at least. And America has been strangely uh, in a daze over this, uh, not opposing it as strongly as you would think. But it's going to cause an absolute catastrophe uh, in our country if they succeed in doing that. And I understand, yes, there are problems with the dollar, but the way they're going to do it has clearly been calculated to cause a tremendous uh, catastrophe uh, and breakdown in the U.S. and probably a, a a physical breakup of the U.S. into different parts, which has been a British policy goal ever since the revolution. The British have always wanted to break up the United States into smaller pieces so they can play the same game of triangulation of playing one against the other and not have to be faced with this, this great uh, united uh, behemoth, which, which could potentially turn against them. So, what I see to answer your question is the same British policy today that we've had for the last 250 years or more. The, a policy of divide and conquer, divide and rule, uh, and a, a policy of playing off one country against the other. We have seen the British play. Uh, we didn't get to talk about the British role in building up China into a superpower at odds with the United States. And Lord William Rees Mogg, in fact, and George Soros were very much involved in building up oh, China. We, back hey, in the, we can the definitely do an entire podcast about that sometime. I wouldn't mind that, that's for sure. Right. And, and there is no question, and there are quotes by Rees Mogg, I, I've blogged on this quite a bit, where he expressly says the whole purpose of this is to replace the power of the United States mm -hmm. with the power of China. And this yeah. is our ally talking. So why would our ally want to replace us 
Well, because this is how, this is the British secret. Uh, the, the secret of the British imperium is to, is to play off one country against another, to go in there and make deals with larger countries and keep them constantly fighting each other with the British playing the middleman and then somehow ending up as the negotiator who, who makes yeah, the deal. The broker, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the honest broker. And uh, the ultimate beneficiaries of all this, of course, are not the British people, but a very small people of the British elites. And, of course, their relatives in many cases and their their um, allies in America and in all the major countries of the world who are working with them, often because they're blood relations of them or, or uh, their people, their elites who have been compromised by them and who are making money off of this this these imperial machinations so the british it looks to me are simply playing the same game that they have always done and so uh, i'm sorry i said this so long-windedly but the, it seems to me there are only two possibilities one is that the british will win they'll get exactly what they want they will split the united states into several pieces they will ally themselves with china and God knows who else, in some coalition to accomplish this humbling of America, which they want very much, moving off the dollar standard into some other standard, and somehow Great Britain, or at least the British upper crust, uh, the, the, the elites who are planning all this, will come out smelling like a rose, mm -hmm. and even seeming to be innocent of all of it. The, the villains will be other countries whom yep. they used. So that's one possibility, which is British victory. The other possibility would have to be a complete change in the world order in which we finally end the Pax Britannica, which I think we're still in the, uh, the phase of it, and we create a real Pax Americana. We're supposedly mm -hmm. in the final stages of, of the Pax Americana, but I don't believe we actually ever had such a thing. I think instead what happened is that the plan of the round tables that they had back in the early 19th century took place where America didn't become the leading power in the world. We simply became the leading physical power within this British mm -hmm. system, which was used mm -hmm. to fight the wars and to expend our blood and treasure to the point where we're now on the verge of catastrophic bankruptcy mm -hmm. and utter destruction and possibly um, the breakup of our country into several pieces, which has been a British agenda since the beginning, yeah. since, since, since the revolution. Yep. That's it. That's it. It looks like you've you've built a fantastic case. Um, and again, there's so much to explore. Uh, you you and I um, do the same. So I'm I'm a little bit behind. I, I I've only had uh, seven eight years doing this sort of research and this sort of work. Um, but I, I I I can't see myself doing anything different in the future. Um, it's really interesting to dive through history and what you discover is a history that has been written for everybody else. And underneath, there's this real layer of um personalities 
of personalities who come in and and uh, are welcomed by the establishment for being the personalities that fits uh, the purpose at the time, and they send them out to do their bidding. And it is true, um, you can definitely see that the British hand in every single um, operation around the world. You know, they are some of the most powerful it's it's i mean i i'm a i'm a welshman so we we class ourselves different than than the english and whatnot um we don't see ourselves as attached to the royal family and stuff but we're still we've been um in this situation for a long time and to be british gives us uh special rights around the world you know the british and american passports are, are sought after for a good reason you know they're they're extremely useful um and especially uh, what I was talking about, I don't know if we talked about it on camera or not, but it's um, about uh, embassies and how British and American embassies have been hotbeds for intelligence for the past, well, since the creation, since before embassies were created and they just had uh, uh, normal diplomatic sort of missions from missionaries out there, you know. Um Listen, your your research is fantastic, um, and I take it you're at uh, richardpoe.com, yeah? Is there anywhere yes. else where the, people can find your work? Is there anything that you'd uh, suggest? Well, uh, probably the best place to see my series of articles is on Substack. Mm-hmm. I'm there. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at realrichardpoe. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you mentioned, I have a website, uh, richardpoe.com. And uh, my books are on Amazon. Yeah, uh, yeah. Probably the most relevant is The Shadow Party that you mentioned, which I co-wrote with David Horowitz, and which talks about George Soros. And um, I guess that's it. Well, I'm definitely going to delve into some of that because um, I'm going to have to, otherwise I won't know the <laughs> I won't know the players for the next part of this game <laughs> that I'm playing here. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Newspace Podcast, Richard. It's a real great pleasure um, to make the acquaintance properly, and thanks for all your work. Thank you, Johnny.